Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. We have a number of updates on the special counsel investigation into Donald Trump, both the Mar-a-Lago documents issue and issues related to January 6th and the election certification. We haven't really done any Trump stuff lately. I mean, we did Fox Dominion at some length, and that's to a large extent about Donald Trump, but Donald Trump is for once not actually a party to that litigation. But we're going we're gonna to talk about some stuff that is even more directly about him. But first, Ken, I want to start with our new favorite, Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, okay. Yeah. So first of all, there's another high-level executive uh, from FTX has pleaded guilty in this investigation into wire fraud and campaign finance violations and a variety of other activities that appear to have been conducted at FTX. Uh, Nishad Singh, 27 years old, was the director of engineering at uh, FTX, and he is now also pleading guilty. Yeah, twenty. First of all, twenty-seven. I mean, the kids are not all right. Okay, these these young people all uh, taking this federal hit. It's not a good thing. Kids should take hits for like drug smuggling or maybe the occasional bank robbery. Not for this. <laughs> not for commodities fraud. For God's sake, that's an old guy crime. Like for people like me. Well, I mean, it used to be like if if a bunch of young guys wanted to start a business in their garage, they would build like personal computers or something. And the worst thing that is likely to happen there is just like the computer doesn't work or isn't any good. Trying to build a commodities exchange basically in your garage seems like an invitation to this sort of outcome. Yeah, I think it really is. So Nishad Singh pled guilty to, uh, like the other cooperators so far, a, a raft of federal crimes, wire fraud, commodities fraud, campaign finance, securities fraud, money laundering. And the point of the plea, Josh, is not so much that we're going to make you plead to all of these things to punish you. It's more as a cooperator, we want you to admit it as much as possible to lock you in to um, what your story is going to be and also make you more useful as a witness and not have the defense be able to say, oh, well, you skated. You only had to plead to commodities fraud instead of all these other things. So this is a plea that it exposes him to the, the uh, very high statutory maximum. And for once, because the numbers are so gigantic, those statutory maximums are actually something where uh, he might have to worry about it. So this is really to give him a maximum incentive to work it off, to do everything he can to cooperate, to take every opportunity to be reliable witness and be a good witness in terms of trying to uh, – persuade Sam Bankman-Fried to enter a plea. Yeah, one of the interesting things uh, in the in the documents here related to the plea is you had all of these political donations that were made by people and entities surrounding FTX, and it appears they were assigned different ideological identities. So you had one FTX executive, Ryan Salami, who gave all of this money to Republicans. And, you know, you may have looked at that from the outside and said, well, gee, I guess, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried is an avid liberal and he has this conservative working for him. But it's looking more like they decided they needed to cover a variety of bases in handing out their money. And so different people would be assigned to give money that was not ultimately theirs, which is illegal. So Nishad Singh uh, was assigned a liberal identity. And one thing they describe in here is he made a very large donation to the LGBTQ Victory Fund, which he felt a little bit uncomfortable about, but then realized, you know, they, well, they didn't have a gay person to give the straw donation to the LGBTQ Victory Fund. And so apparently that, that fell to Nishad Singh. Well, I mean, that's one reason why workplace diversity is important, Josh, so you can run your <laughs> campaign finance fraud properly, uh, credibly. 
so yeah, uh, this is actually a very traditional adult and cynical approach to campaign uh, donations. They're uh, very much transactional about it. They very much thought, look, we want to cover all the bases. We want to have everyone in our pocket. <laughs> and so let's find the most convincing way to split that up. That's actually relatively adult thinking. So, I mean, good for them in, in doing crimes in a methodical way. <laughs> the other big SBF news in the last few days is that there's a, a joint proposal from the Department of Justice and from SBF's attorneys on new bail terms to try to make sure that he doesn't have electronic devices that he can make mischief with. And so one thing is they want to give him like a flip phone or some other phone that is not a smartphone. And they want to give him a laptop where the VPN on the laptop will only allow him to visit certain specified websites, some of them that are needed to prepare for his defense. Some of them, like Uber Eats, are because he, I guess he wants to order food and they don't think that he can do anything that's monkey business related to the Cates on the Uber Eats site. But so it seems like this is how they're trying to square the circle of how they can avoid putting SBF in jail pending this uh, the, the trial that's upcoming, which would make it a lot more complicated for for everybody to prepare for the trial, to keep him out there in his parents' house while making sure that he's not using Signal or whatever to, to contact people he shouldn't be contacting. Yeah, th this smacks to me of a few things happening. First of all, I think the prosecutors are smarting a little bit from the rebuke from the judge who, who more or less said, why are you being so easy on this guy? And they thought that they have to kind of, you know, toughen up a little bit and, and offer some terms. Now, I don't really think they're that harsh terms. I mean, SBF seems exactly like the type of hipster asshole who carries around a flip phone anyway, so we can say, oh, look, I have a flip phone. Um, no, SBF does not have nearly good enough style to be a hipster. He's just one of these tech losers. And the other thing is, anyone who has kids knows that in a war between authority and youth over uh, what sites are going to be allowed to visit, authority never wins. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how that works out. But I think the other thing that's happening is probably the defense lawyers are using this opportunity to exercise some control and get terms that help them manage their clients. <laughs> so like this term where he can't talk to FTX people without a lawyer present is exactly what you'd want as a Exactly rule. what the lawyer would want. Yeah, well, exactly. So now the lawyers can say, hey, look, it's not my idea. Look, it's right here in your bail terms that you have to behave this way. Okay, let's talk about Donald Trump and the issues that he faces with special counsel Jack Smith. Uh, so first of all, Trump is not really happy about special counsel Jack Smith. And now it's, you know, it's, first of all, it's normal to be unhappy about being the target of a federal criminal investigation. So I think, first of all, I think we can we can have a little bit of empathy for Donald Trump there. Does it look from the outside like Trump is worse off now that Jack Smith is overseeing his fate rather than if he was being overseen by ordinary line prosecutors in the Department of Justice? Uh, yes, I would say on balance, he's worse off. Jack Smith is very sort of professional and uh, seems to be wanting to wrap things up quickly, which is bad if that results in charges, but good for Trump if it doesn't result in charges. So if Jack Smith is going to say, OK, enough of this nonsense, let's just close this, then that's good for Trump. But uh, nothing in Trump's demeanor is suggesting that he thinks it's going to be good for him or that he's optimistic about the outcome. He is flipping out in his purple prose about how terrible Jack Smith is and about he's a criminal and a tyrant and, and all this sort of thing. And, you know, just like Trump, only even more so in terms of the rhetoric. And Smith is not 
reacting at all. No one's really reacting at all. To some extent, they're just letting Trump rant. And so the the Washington Post had this story about Jack Smith and the pace of his investigation. And they note uh, that as he has been putting out subpoenas, he's putting strict deadlines for responses on them that suggest that he's trying to push quickly toward internal charging decisions, maybe as soon as this spring. Can we read into that, that that's his timeline, that he that he wants to try to make that decision quite? I mean, it's March already. That would be really soon. It would be. So, uh, you know, federal prosecutors and timelines tend to get stretched and tends to be longer. So he could just be trying to exercise some very rough control over a timeline to have it be in the you know, foreseeable future. That doesn't mean it's actually going to happen in the spring. You know, uh, federal prosecutors, we've got to get all this wrapped up in the spring might be the way you say we got to get it wrapped up this calendar year. And so is this calendar year good enough from a perspective of I mean, you have these guidelines about the Department of Justice is supposed to avoid bringing politically sensitive charging decisions right before elections. Now, the next presidential election is not until November of next year. There will be Republican presidential primaries as soon as the winter of 2024. And then there's this sort of odd thing in these news stories that's where people say things about, oh, you know, it's going to be increasingly politically difficult for the special counsel to bring charges as we get closer and closer to the election. Does the special prosecutor have to care about political difficulty? I mean, I understand why it might be why DOJ might find it inconvenient if the charges get brought close to the election, but it's not clear why that's any skin off Jack Smith's back. And and so all of which is to say, is he running up against a deadline? Is there a date at which if he has not charged Donald Trump or certain people close to Donald Trump that he can't do that until after November 2024? Well, yeah, I think the the date is by DOJ guidelines, probably at the latest, a few months before the election. The election being the general election or being the primaries? Uh, I think it's probably the general election. But it's okay. it's I suppose you could make an argument that it's the primaries to the extent that Trump is mixing it up with somebody in the primaries, which presumably he will be. I think so long as it's this year, you're not going to have any good arguments that it's improper under DOJ guidelines, no matter what. Trump and Trump supporters are going to make arguments that um, it's interfering in a presidential candidate's campaign. You could do it tomorrow and they'd be making that argument. So the answer is I think Smith was brought in because he's a sophisticated player. Uh, he's done high-level things before. He understands the the institutional complications, uh, but he's not going to focus on them. So he's not going to do something gratuitously politically incendiary. But on the other hand, uh, he's not going to let the entire prospect of how could you possibly uh, recommend indicting Donald Trump stop him from doing that if that's where the path takes him. There's also been a fair amount of news coverage relating to an increasing focus on Donald Trump's attorneys in this investigation. We've talked a little bit about this, about efforts to question Evan Corcoran, who's one of the president's attorneys who's been involved in the documents matter, basically uh, where the where the government is is asserting that they can pierce the attorney-client privilege uh, because of the crime-fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege, which is to say if you, if you use your attorney to further a crime or a fraud, then your communications with that attorney may, may not be privileged. And we talked about that in the context of statements that Donald Trump made to the federal government about whether there were any more documents that belonged to the government sitting at Mar-a-Lago, a statement that was made ultimately through his attorneys, uh, whether he was using those attorneys to mislead the government effectively. But that's just one of, of several instances in which the government is trying to talk to Trump's attorneys about what they talked with Donald Trump about. 
What does that tell you about the status of this investigation? I mean, the line from from Trump's own spokesperson, Stephen Chung, is that this is an indicator that the investigation is weak, that they have to look at his communications with his attorneys because they don't have a more traditional angle here. I'd say it's more in the other direction. So generally, you don't even try to mix it up with attorneys unless you have a strong investigation. The crime fraud exception is a big lift. Federal judges um, are slow to invoke it and to agree to let you question attorneys over their communications with clients. You don't go to a federal judge with a weak case asking for that. So I, I think this indicates a level of confidence in, that there's a crime there. Perhaps just the fact that it's a little complicated because a lot of the lying to the government was done by attorneys. And so the challenge is to uh, prove that it was done at Trump's request and not just by the attorneys going off on their own. One of the things that the the Washington Post notes in covering this is that a number of these attorneys have been called before the grand jury and that it's not typical to call someone before the grand jury if you're thinking about charging them. And we talked about two different ways that your work with your attorney could be subject to the crime fraud exception here. One would be if you sit down with the attorney and say, what kind of lie can we come up with to tell the government so it'll get off our backs? And the other one that's much more favorable for the attorney uh, is if you lie to the attorney and say, well, I found all the documents. So go tell the government that I looked very diligently and we found all the documents. So calling the attorneys before the grand jury, is that an indication that the attorneys do not face legal liability here? What if they were to find out that uh, Trump conspired with the attorneys to make false statements and that the attorneys were knowingly in on that? It can indicate that. To be more confident about that, I would want to know what they told the attorneys when they called them in. So there are Department of Justice regulations about giving something called a target letter, where if you're going to call somebody who is a target of the investigation into the grand jury, you're supposed to notify them under most circumstances. So that would be something that uh, they would get a letter about under normal DOJ regulations and practices if they were seen as someone that they were planning to indict. Um, If they don't regard them as targets, which could be either because they don't have the evidence or because they think, you know, we've got our eyes on the prize here. Ultimately, we're just going to go after Trump and we're going to sacrifice going after people who are just in his orbit helping him. They might have done it without a target letter. Is there anything that would stop his attorneys from asserting a Fifth Amendment privilege? Uh, nothing other than political factors. So um, they could certainly have plausible. I, I think some of his attorneys seem to have um, rather pressing for Fifth Amendment uh, <laughs> claims here. <laughs> uh, and there's some indications, you know, uh, whether it's attorneys, you know, in, insisting on qualifying the guarantees they're making and showing sort of like a consciousness of maybe these statements are not accurate. Uh, I think some of them have real exposure and an attorney advising them might tell them to take the fifth. But, you know, the headline Donald Trump's attorney takes the fifth is a big thing and it's it causes a lot of drama. And we've seen throughout all of this and by all this, I mean everything, all the legal uh, drama connected to the Trump administration and its aftermath that often bad decisions have been made uh, for political reasons, that, that people have let the public relations angle predominate over good 
criminal justice decisions about whether or not to take the fifth. Well, but the the grand jury proceeding is secret. If if someone took the fifth before the grand jury, like in theory, we might not find that out, right? I guess you'd have to be worried about it leaking, or there there could be some point further on in the proceeding where the where what happened in the grand jury would be revealed, and then we would learn that the attorney had taken the fifth. But in theory, you should be able to walk in today, take the fifth, and that shouldn't end up in the press. Yeah, but a lot of this stuff is winding up in the press, Josh. We keep hearing stories about how, you know, there's been a, you know, a motion to quash one of these subpoenas or how the government's gone in to apply the crime fraud exception and convince the judge of that. So more of these proceedings are leaking than we have previously seen. Well, except that the witnesses are allowed to talk about it. So we don't know that these are illicit leaks. It could be that there are things that the witnesses want known that they did in these proceedings. Like if you are Trump's attorney, you might want it known in the press. You might want Trump seeing it publicly said that you refuse to answer questions about your representation of him as Evan Corcoran did in the uh, in the grand jury. It could be that Evan Corcoran is the source of that. But if there was something that the witness didn't want known, then the witness wouldn't talk and the other people are not supposed to talk. That's true. And Generally, uh, the Department of Justice is better than you might expect them to be at avoiding grand jury leaks. Uh, you know, if, if you're if you're grading the Department of Justice on adherence to the rule <laughs> of law, it's probably one of the areas where they get a better grade. But there seems just to be a consistent stream of leaks about these proceedings in a way that it was not during Robert Mueller's grand jury investigations. And I'm skeptical that it would remain secret if something as big happened as a Trump attorney taking the fifth. You, you talked about it being a pretty heavy lift to pierce the, the attorney-client privilege with this crime fraud theory. And we talked about these signs that Jack Smith is trying to hurry here. Presumably, having to try to, to compel testimony from these attorneys, um, Corcoran has refused to testify about certain matters. We know there's going to be a, a hearing before a judge about that. You could conceivably have an appeal of the ruling from that judge. I assume this is something that could drag out for quite some time. And if this testimony is important for making his case, that could be a factor that interferes with any effort that he has to try to bring charges within a few months. Uh, yes. So you, first you have the briefing and argument and decision by the United States district judge about whether or not to order a response to the grand jury. And then you could conceivably appeal that decision up to the Court of Appeals and then maybe even try to take it to the Supreme Court. Historically, um, this type of time-sensitive stuff where the question is whether you're going to compel testimony over crime fraud, appellate courts don't tend to delay it a lot for whatever reason. They just avoid it by uh, you know, maybe not taking it up, not issuing a stay, whatever, perhaps recognizing that their role could be uh, a spoiler in investigations. So you do not get as many situations as you might expect where the person gets a stay of the lower court decision and therefore stops an investigation for years. Hmm. Um, and then we, we've mostly talked about these conversations with his attorneys in, in the context of the of the Mar-a-Lago searches and the, and the ultimate uh, FBI search warrant that they executed there. There's also a note in this Washington Post story about the focus on the lawyers uh, about questions about whether Boris Epstein, uh, who's another Trump attorney, one who used to appear a lot on television, whether he improperly tried to influence testimony by speaking to witnesses about establishing common interest privilege. What does that mean? That's a joint defense agreement. 
Uh, and it's very popular in white collar investigations and where you have groups of well-heeled subjects and targets who are, uh, you know, looking for a way out. So remember, Josh, typically the attorney client privilege and the work product privilege require you to shut up. You know, you, you can't make your communications with your attorney privileged if you spread them around and disclose them to third parties. But there's an exception. If there are people who have a common interest in the defense of a case uh, or the prosecution of a case or something like that, then you can have a group of people say, all right, we all have a common interest here and we're going to agree to exchange information, but to keep it confidential, not to disclose it to anything other than our lawyers who are going to use it to give us legal advice. And our lawyers are going to aggregate what we know in order to give us all legal advice. So that's called a common interest agreement or a joint defense agreement, sometimes an information sharing agreement. Very common in white collar stuff. It happens all the time. And it's a useful tool for figuring out what happened and what the government is looking for. They are generally enforced. And the government does not like them. The government would prefer that there be no common interest doctrine and that, uh, you know, if you have two defendants and their lawyers are talking, that that somehow waives the privilege and the government can go after it. But that's not what the courts have generally held. You could certainly imagine a situation where somebody in talking about, hey, why don't we have a joint defense agreement, could drift into uh, the realm of coercion or suggesting what somebody else's testimony should be or something like that. But it's not inherently illegal or unusual or deceitful. So I, I would want to know in evaluating this government claim whether this is just them grousing about the existence of joint defense agreements, um, what was allegedly said by Epstein that they say uh, was coercion or was witness tampering. Finally, let's let's talk about a couple of issues that have to do with uh, the privileges of, of being president or vice president. Uh, so former President Trump has been sued by a Capitol Police officer over the January 6th attack on the theory that President Trump instigated uh, the violence that happened there and is responsible for damages that he suffered. And the former president has, has argued a categorical immunity um, for any speeches that he gives on a matter of public interest as president. I mean, at, at issue here is the speech that he gave outside the White House that would up the crowd that then marched down to the Capitol and, you know, broke down the doors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, isn't Trump right about this? Can, I would have not I would have assumed that you can't sue the president over things that he said in, in what do appear to be his, you know, his official capacity as president. He was talking about an official proceeding that was going to be happening in the U.S. Congress that he didn't like and that people should oppose it. Um, you know, the, the speech was obviously morally reprehensible, but it's hard to it's hard for me to see how you could sue him over it in his personal capacity. Well, so, Josh, this appeal and this issue is all about the presidential immunity, and you have to distinguish that from the other types we've talked about before, like under the Westfall Act, which you might remember is the law that says when a federal employee is sued for something in the scope of their job, then the Justice Department comes in and defends them and takes over the case. This is different. This is that unique presidential immunity that the president can't be prosecuted or sued for something in the course of their duties. Uh, but the Supreme Court has always said that that immunity is almost absolute, but not absolute. It goes to uh, the, the phrase is the outer perimeter 
of presidential duties. But the court asked the Justice Department to weigh in on this. The sole issue uh, on this appeal right now is if, as the trial court found, um, the president's speech was incitement, um, satisfied the Brandenburg test of being intended and likely to cause imminent lawless action, is it still covered by immunity? And what the Justice Department said in a brief filed this last week is that, no, um, if it is outside of First Amendment protection and a crime, then it's not within the uh, outer perimeter of presidential duties. But as you suggest, you see how this is kind of a circular type of argument and, and the exception that can swallow the rule, because everyone's always going to say that whatever they're suing the president for was a, a criminal act or an act not protected by the First Amendment or somehow outside the scope of what is appropriate. And if you can just say, well, the president's speech is absolutely protected so long as it's lawful, then you're going to get cases like this. So I, I think this is going to be difficult for the court to wrestle with. But the Department of Justice seems to be saying for now that in a situation like this, where the only question is if the president engages in actual incitement outside the First Amendment, is that uh, absolutely privileged? Is that absolutely immune? The DOJ's answer is no, it's not. Could the president still fall back on immunity under the Westfall Act and the Federal Tort Claims Act? I mean, I mean, the prior context in which we've talked about this a lot is E. Jean Carroll's defamation lawsuit uh, against the former president. And defamation is not protected by the First Amendment. And so you if the president defames somebody, it's not that he has a First Amendment right to do that. But I, I think our understanding is that the Federal Tort Claims Act and the Westfall Act would still mean that you could not sue the president personally over that. The federal government would stand in as the defendant. And because the federal government cannot be sued for defamation, you would not be able to proceed there. Couldn't the former president basically force the federal government to stand in as the defendant in this in this case, um, even if the broader presidential immunity did not apply? Well, maybe, because the the Westfall Act only applies when you're acting within the scope of your duties. And so the question of whether or not inciting a crowd to violence is within the scope of the presidential duties is a question that is similar to but narrower than the presidential immunity question. And so I, I, I we'd have to see what the DOJ would say. Would, would they say that would they take the the approach where you look at the context and you let it be driven by the context? So he's giving a speech about public issues, therefore it's covered. Or would they mm -hmm. take this categorical exclusion approach they seem to be taking here, which is, well, the allegation is this is incitement and that's outside the First Amendment and therefore it can't be within the scope of his duties. But I thought that that is not the way that we've looked at this previously. I mean, I realize it sounds absurd to say that, you know, certain kinds of illegal speech could be protected in this manner. But but I thought it I thought the tests all had to do with the purpose of the speech rather than the effect of the speech, which is to say that the reason that the former president denying a rape allegation could be within the scope of his duties is that the president has to manage his reputation and appeal to voters and convince people that he is a good person whom they should support. And that that encompasses all manner of statements that he might make about his character or his past actions or that sort of thing. And that could apply even if the statement was defamatory. Similarly here, the purpose of this speech was to further a political goal of his. He wanted to remain as president. 
And so that, you know, that certainly seems within the ambit of what one does in the presidency. I, I wouldn't have thought that the test reaches the question of whether the speech was illegal or whether the speech had terrible effects. Well, again, and that's why it is somewhat startling to have the Department of Justice weigh in on this, taking this approach where, you know, if we're assuming for the sake of argument, this was incitement, that it's outside uh, the absolute presidential immunity. If they were to carry that logic further, and it's not yet clear whether they will because it's not – the Westfall Act is not reached in this appeal, then you you could see them starting to carve out some exceptions like that. And mm-hmm. that's uh, – one thing that's startling here is that the Department of Justice has generally taken a stance that's very protective of uh, federal employee immunity, even to the extent you might remember where – there was a lot of uh, criticism and anger about their stance in the E. Jean Carroll case, saying that mm-hmm. they were, in effect, protecting former President Trump. Which is the, the stance they have taken continuing into the Biden administration. Yes, exactly. And so uh, you know, we've talked about how that's just institutionally Department of Justice not wanting to make it easier to sue uh, the president, no matter who's in that hot seat. So that's why it's a little surprising to see them take this stance here and narrow somewhat that absolute presidential immunity. And then there's also this issue of executive privilege. Mike Pence is another one of these people who has been subpoenaed to testify before Jack Smith's grand jury. And Mike Pence, as we've discussed, uh, is asserting uh, an immunity from testifying under the speech or debate clause of the U.S. Constitution, which protects senators and representatives uh, from being questioned about certain aspects of their official duties, contending that in his role as president of the United States Senate, uh, that he was under those protections that apply to the legislative branch, even though he's not a senator or representative, and even though he is not really a member of the legislative branch. You now have former President Trump making his own effort to block Mike Pence from testifying, and his assertion is that the testimony should be blocked by executive privilege, which is to say that uh, Mike Pence was a senior uh, official in the executive branch. He was advising the president on policy matters. In this instance, he was advising the president that he could not steal the election, even though the president really, really wanted him to, and that therefore that is protected by executive privilege. And so I guess isn't isn't the first issue here the same one that kept coming up with Eileen Cannon and the, the Mar-a-Lago documents, which is that you can't assert executive privilege against the executive branch. And here it is, you know, the Department of Justice is trying to get testimony out of Mike Pence. Yeah, that's certainly one of the arguments. The executive privilege is traditionally understood to be a protection, a, you know, a check and balance, a protection of the separation of power so that Congress can't compel you to disclose things uh, from the executive branch. And here that's not what's happening. It's a, it's a purely executive investigation. But even leaving aside that, which has not been litigated out to the fullest. Uh, There are also some questions about exactly what type of communications we're talking about here. So executive privilege normally would apply to a relatively small circle of people giving advice to the president or to equip others to give advice to the president. And if what they want to ask Pence about is actually what was the president demanding that you do? Was he threatening you? Was he, you know, sending people to tell you you have to do this? That That is not necessarily executive privilege unless he's soliciting advice, I suppose. But if, if they just want to find out, you know, did Trump call you in a rage demanding that you do X, Y, Z? Uh, I don't think that's executive privilege. That's not a the executive privilege doesn't apply also to the president's communications down to those advisors. I mean, doesn't the president need to solicit the advice? He does. But there's a difference between soliciting advice and a discussion about that and him, you know, calling someone and threatening them. 
which is not plausibly a solicitation of advice. So you could see how there could be some communications that could be outside executive privilege and some that could be within. But so that this is an argument that would defeat only some of Trump's efforts to block testimony from Mike Pence. Presumably, Mike Pence could receive some questions. There are relevant matters the government would want to know that would be advisory. Exactly. I mean, they might ask about what Mike Pence said to the president about what he believed his own powers as, as vice president and as the person presiding over the count of the electoral votes, what he believed his powers were. Presumably, the government will want to defeat the entire executive privilege argument. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't you do that by asserting that there is no executive privilege against the executive? You would do that, but you might also, rather than force the judge to make a big pronouncement like that, that is the uh, sort of thing that is more likely to go up on appeal and even to the Supreme Court, you might want the judge to make a narrower, more conservative ruling that, okay, well, if you're not even asking them about these things, only about those things, and those are not executive privilege, then we don't have a problem here. I mean, executive privilege is an entirely made-up doctrine with no apparent basis in the Constitution. But anyway, um, the uh, I have news for you about also... Western law, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> but so and in that spirit of being made up and fuzzy and what people feel like it is when they wake up in the morning, aren't there also balancing tests like this? Wasn't this in Nixon and Watergate where basically if something if there's a really compelling public interest in knowing something that that can then overcome the executive privilege? Could that apply here? Yes. So executive privilege is not absolute. And you could certainly make a, an additional argument that when the crime is being investigated, that the uh, executive privilege is overcome. But again, that's the type of determination that is more likely to get appellate court involvement that slows everything down. Uh, what you generally want is a narrower decision on less controversial issues. Just to use an analogy, you might remember that when Lindsey Graham was subpoenaed before the grand jury in Georgia, he asserted the speech and debate clause protection. And what it really turned on in the end was, well, we don't need to resolve completely the big question of whether he has that protection because there's this narrow range of questions that clearly aren't covered by speech and debate. So we're going to say those are fine. So what Department of Justice may do here is frame a narrow range of questions that clearly aren't executive privilege because they're not about, you know, that give and take of advice and see if you can get the judge just to say, well, whatever else, I don't have to resolve. These are fine. I think that's enough serious trouble for today. Uh, listeners, you know where to find us. You can go to seriousTrouble.show. Uh, and you can also email us. Ken, where can they contact us via email? They can contact us at RicoHotline at SeriousTrouble.show. This show is free to all listeners. We, we love all of you equally. Well, actually, we don't love all of you equally, but we love all of you. Um, last week's show, uh, which was a, a deep dive into certain issues related to the uh, litigation between Fox News and Dominion Voting Systems, that show was only for paying subscribers. So if you're not a paying subscriber and you want to hear that episode and you want to hear every complete episode, more than 40 episodes a year of Serious Trouble, I encourage you to go to SeriousTrouble.show and sign up to support us as a paying listener. For just $6 a month or $60 a year, you get all of that content. You also get to participate in our lively and interesting comment threads at SeriousTrouble.show. Uh, and of course, you make it possible for us to make this podcast for you. So again, I encourage you, go to SeriousTrouble.show and sign up. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening. More soon.